0: versions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time Odyssey the following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time up next is verse by verse sponsored by verse by verse ministries
2: but why is it important for us to understand, to read, to study, to know what its message is all about. Because it is not only a great story, but it is the drama of how God overruled Satan's attempt to destroy Israel.
1: Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're glad you could join us today for the conclusion of a wonderful series from the book of Esther. We've seen some critical Christian truths outlined and demonstrated in this study of Esther. We've noted God's wisdom and power displayed in his control over events and men. And we have observed that he is both willing and able to keep his promises, even though we may not be in proper obedience to him. Let's listen now as Pastor Steve wraps up this meaningful study.
2: But I want you to know the critics of Esther, uh, Queen Esther, say that she was a vengeful person. A person seeking blood. Why? Well, let's look at verses 11 through 15. You'll see why the critics say this, and then we'll try to answer them. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall, be, uh, it shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall be also done. Then said Esther, if it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa and Haman's sons were hanged. Verse 15 says, And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, why would Esther make such a request like this? Haman's sons were already dead, and yet she said, Put a pole through them, hang them. Probably does not mean hanging them by their neck, but put them on a pole, stick it even even a stake through them, and hang them so everyone could see. 500 enemies already have been killed. Why more? Well, the critics say she was bloodthirsty. They say it's unnecessary. I don't believe that to be the case. I think it's more reasonable, and we're not really specifically told in scripture, but it is more reasonable to conclude that there were still pockets of resistance in the capital city. People who were looking forward to getting a second crack at the Jewish people. And Esther probably had this reported to her. She probably was aware of a certain kind of plot that was about to take place the second day. And so she comes to the king and she says, look, if you give us another chance, we'll be able to stamp this resistance out completely. Not only that, but the exposing of Haman's sons put on a stake and stuck high in the air would serve as an example and a deterrent to anyone who was really thinking about harming the Jews. In fact, this was very uh, common in ancient uh, uh, custom. Ancient custom was that criminals would be hung so that everyone could see them, and it was a warning, don't mess with us. This is what happens to our enemies. So I think that is, is certainly more reasonable than saying she was bloodthirsty. We just don't see that. There's no indication of that in, in the rest of this book. But once again... Even in this, God is protecting Israel from being caught off guard in another attack. Now, this is what went on in the capital city, Susa, 500 men, and then the 10 sons of Haman. But what was taking place in the rest of the province, in the rest of the empire, what was going on? Verses 16 through 19 tell us that. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. A lot of people hated the Jewish people. This was not a minor problem. You kill 75,000 who hate you and you've got a major anti-Semitic problem. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Once again, the writer says, wasn't for blood, just defense. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Now, what's the saying? The Jews in Susa celebrated their victory on the 15th day of the month because they had two days to fight unlike anyone else in the kingdom, two days to fight, and then they rested on the third day, which would be the 15th day of the month. But the other Jews in the rest of the empire only fought one day, and they killed 75,000. And so they rested on the 14th day of the month. And so the initial origin of Purim, at its start, had two days, the 15th for those in the capital, the 14th for everybody else. Let's look at verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events. And by the way, this may, verse 20, there may be a period of of months or even years between verses 19 and 20. It would seem reasonable to conclude that. Then Mordecai recorded these events. What events? The events that had taken place. The the killing of the people, the defense, the feasting of the, the two holidays. He recorded these events, or the two days of the one holiday we should say, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them From sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, this may, as I said, have been years later. Maybe not, but may have been years later. But Mordecai now issues a decree that there should be one unified holiday celebrated now on two days of every year. Two days now. He makes it official. And there's to be feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Levy, who is on the staff of the Friends of Israel, writing in their magazine Israel My Glory, says this about Purim. This is just fascinating. On the eve of Purim, Jewish people gather together in their synagogues for the reading of Esther. And this is what takes place today. More popularly, he says, it's called the Megillah. So if you hear of Esther or Megillah, it's the same thing. The Megillah is read a second time on the day of Purim at the morning service. All from grandparents to the youngest child are required to listen to the story of Esther on the day of Purim. When Haman's name is mentioned, the children in the congregation will shake noisemakers, boo and stamp their feet to blot out his name and memory. In some oriental countries, an effigy of Haman is hung and burned. The person reading the book of Esther will recite the names of Haman's ten sons in one breath since they were hung together. Someone who obviously could hold their breath for a long time. That's my comments. Today, the Jewish community, he says, celebrates in a similar way. First, a festive dinner is held in the afternoon, celebrating the joyous deliverance which the Jewish people experience. Children will wear costumes and carnivals are held in many synagogues. Such food as boiled uh, beans, peas, and hamantaschen. You know what hamantaschen is? That's that's, uh, another word for Haman's ears are eaten at Purim. A hamantaschen, he says, is a triangular-shaped pastry filled with poppy seed, prune, and other fillings. They are served at this time, recalling the triangular hat worn by Haman. I can only assume that's just uh, a tradition that's come down to us. I don't think it says that in the Bible. Secondly, it is required that each person send portions of food to friends and neighbors. At least two items... Fruit, candy, or baked foods are sent to one person, usually delivered by the children. Thirdly, it is required that each person give gifts to two poor people. Even the poor are required to give as well. And I want to add to that that in some Oriental Jewish communities... Not only uh, do they go through this, but there are comic plays that are put on. Uh, They're also, uh, in these plays, rabbis will uh, put on a skit and use satire to speak about other rabbis. And what you say, what does that have to do with Purim? Probably nothing, except that I want you to understand this is a very enjoyable uh, time for the Jewish people. This is a festive occasion. And I, even though I look back and try to, try to recall in my mind that I go through all this, all I can remember is that noise shaker, that, that rattler. And I know it was fun. And so the Jewish people do this. And so it's, even from Esther, which was thousands of years ago, it still continued to this day. They have not forgotten when it comes to their preservation Verse 23 goes on to say, Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this wicked scheme, which, which he had devised against the Jews, should return to his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both What they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Now, this is just explaining the official record about Purim. The Jews were probably already beginning to celebrate the two days by themselves, but now Mordecai's letter made it simply official. Why do they call this feast Purim? It's taken from the Babylonian word "pur," which means lot or dice. Is that important? Let's turn, and I've gone over this before. This should just be a reminder. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 tells us about the lot or about dice. There are many places in the Bible that speak about dice or the lot being thrown. But I think all of it points to this this very, very important scripture hidden away in Proverbs 16 verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, men may throw the dice, but God controls the results. You see, God is even in control of Las Vegas, if I could paraphrase it that way. When you find lots in the Bible, and you find dice, there's an understanding when a believer throws it. There's an understanding that God is in control, Even the early apostles used that as they cast dice to determine who would take the place of of Judas. Were they gambling? Was it wrong? No, not really. No. No, because they understood that this was one way that God would give them an indication of his will. It's not the way that I would choose now to determine the will of God, but that's the way they did. And the reason this feast is called Purim is out of recognition that lots were cast by Haman... Out of superstition, not as a believer, but as a pagan who was very superstitious and cast lots to determine what day the Jews would be killed. And as God would have it, not as luck would have it, but as God would have it in his, in his providence and sovereignty, he made the dice turn up so that it, the Jews would have a year to prepare and, and there would be time for a second decree to be written and for them to defend and assemble themselves and to get ready. So they call this Purim, with a recognition that God controls the dice. Verse twenty-nine. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim, and he sent letters to all the Jews, to all to the one hundred and twenty-seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely, words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. And the command of Esther established these customs of Purim, and it was written in the book. Now this was a second letter, which was sent out by Esther and Mordecai, confirming the first letter to celebrate Purim annually on the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar. I don't know exactly why they did this. Maybe there was still some resistance to the idea of celebrating Purim on two days. We're not told. But this second letter established something new. It was different. Because it says that there was instruction for times of fasting and lamentations. I want you to understand that today the Jews celebrate that. The day before uh, this, this feast, they are supposed to fast. In fact, you know what it's called? It's called the Fast of Esther. Because you see, before there was joy in the morning, there was sorrow in the evening. Before there was gladness, there was sorrow. Before there was victory, there was, there was an appearance of defeat. And verse 32 says that Esther's letter was recorded in the official royal Persian records. The book closes, chapter 10, just with three verses, but important because it closes with a tribute to Mordecai, once a hated Jew in the empire, but now a a revered Jew in, in the highest position in Persia apart from the king. Verses one through three say this, now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. That is, there was a tax there, is what it's saying. In all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of uh, Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole Nation, The official records of Persia even record the greatness of King Ahasuerus and Mordecai. Now, why would the writer mention these books? We're not certain, but I'll tell you what, what uh, is perhaps the reason. Perhaps because the Old Testament book of Esther seems so incredible, so amazing, so almost unbelievable in its presentation of the providence of God, in his workings for protecting Israel that the writer feels compelled to invite his readers to check out the facts for themselves. Now, we don't have these records now, but a contemporary reading this would probably say, no, couldn't have happened. No, this only comes true in fairy tales. No, this, this is just a fanciful story. And the writer is saying, check it out. Check out its historical accuracy. Look in the records of the Medes and the Persians and you'll find out that it is is linked with history. It is historically accurate. It is God's word and it is true and you can check out the facts in any Persian history book. Now that closes our study. But I think it's important as we bring this to a final conclusion to say why is Esther... Such an important book for the New Testament Christian to study and understand and interpret properly. And when I say that, I mean we don't allegorize it. We don't say Esther symbolizes this and Mordecai symbolizes that. And you never know what the writer means by by doing that. But why is it important for us to understand, to read, to study, to know what its message is all about? Because it is not only a great story, but it is the drama of how God overruled Satan's attempt to destroy Israel. Do you realize how important this book is to us? Do you realize that if Haman's plot had succeeded, there would be no more Jews? There would be no more Israel? And if that had happened, there would never be a Messiah who would come through the line of the Jewish people. No Purim means no Israel. No Israel means no Christianity. No Christianity means no salvation. But you know, the real message of Esther is that we have a great God. That's the real message. We have a great God who not only protects and preserves Israel, but who keeps his word. Even when we don't deserve it. Even when we're disobedient, he keeps his word. Centuries ago, Moses saw a bush that burned, but it was not consumed, right? Remember the story in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3? And he said, I will now turn aside and I will see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. Remember that bush that was burning and it was not consumed. Why wasn't it consumed? It ought to have been consumed by, by human reason and logic. The region was dry, very, very arid. The bush was scorched and withered. And it should have been consumed, but it wasn't. Reason would say that the bush should have just burnt up like that, and been just dry, crisp, brittle, consumed. Why didn't it? Because it was an object lesson, an object lesson to Moses and to all of us. And the lesson was this logic and reason say that the bush should be consumed and dead. But it was miraculously sustained and preserved by God Almighty, by Jehovah, the great I Am. At that same moment in redemptive history, down in Egypt, the people of Moses, the Jewish people, were in slavery. Logic and reason shouted against their survival. Never should they have survived. But like that bush, they would be miraculously sustained and they would be preserved by the great I Am. That's the message of of Esther. God preserves his people, preserves the integrity of his word. What should be our response to God's word in Esther? I'll tell you, praise, confidence in him, and a view towards life that says there are no accidents in the Christian life. There's no luck. Remember we started off by saying my basketball shooting, some said what luck? They're still saying that, but it's not true. There's no luck, there's no superstition in the Christian life, no room for it. Nothing, no room for words like fate, fortune, accidents, well it just happened, coincidence, none of that. The book of Esther cries out against all of that in a Christian's thinking and says that God sits on the throne and he controls the affairs of men. God is sovereign and he preserves his people through providence. Let's bow for prayer. If you have never, ever trusted this wonderful God for your salvation, then do so. The Bible says, Who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's wonderful to know that this God, who is keenly interested in, and in control of the affairs of nations, is also interested in you, personally interested. Isn't that wonderful? And you could put your head down tonight on your pillow and know that he that keeps Israel also keeps you. He that neither sleeps nor slumbers is watching over you. That's great to know. If you've never trusted Christ, know that he loves you and he wants you to come to him. And if you do know him and you do love him and you're his people, rest in him. Don't be afraid of life. Don't be afraid of the things we see going on in the world today, terrorism, terrorism horrible things taking place understand that God knows the very hairs that are on your head he knows their numbers if he takes care of a little bird that falls to the ground how much more important are you to him he'll take care of you face life with confidence in him and reckless abandonment to the will of God that's what Esther says to me he preserves Israel he'll preserve me and when it's time that he For us to die, nothing can change it anyway. Just rest in him. Father, it's been good to study this book. Thank you for it. Lord, we pray that many more people will have opportunity to understand the message of this book. will have opportunity to study it. It's a sad thing that the Jewish people who don't know Christ are more familiar with this book than those who do know Christ and ought to understand about your sovereignty and providence and your plan and program for Israel So teach us, Lord. Help us to be instruments to let others know the true message of Esther. Father, help us to have the right view of life. No luck, no fate, no fortune, no coincidence, nothing that just happened. But you're in control over the affairs of this world. Thank you for that great word to us. Lord, it's rich. Help us to live by it. Help us to remember it, not to forget it tomorrow, not to forget it next week months, years, but to have Your Word ingrained in our hearts, to have Your Word drip our hearts. All of this, Lord, we pray in the precious name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen.
1: Amen. I don't know about you, but I find it comforting to know that God is in control over the affairs of this world. Thanks for tuning in to Verse by Verse for the conclusion of Pastor Steve Kreloff's series from the book of Esther, Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. You can learn more online at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Verse by verse depends on the gifts and prayers of generous listeners like you. So thank you for your gift.